Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you are listening. I'm recording on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. This podcast episode is supported by GluteGuard. The podcast is not intended to be medical advice, which needs to be tailored to individual circumstances. Uh, It's for information only, and please exercise um, judgment before deciding to use the information provided. And of course, professional advice needs to be obtained before taking any action. So gluten-free diets is our topic today, and we're going to touch on medical developments in the space and look at the role of dietitians in the management of gluten-related disorders. But we're also going to focus a little more on some non-celiac medical presentations where maybe eliminating gluten from the diet can benefit our patients. And I'm really fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Kim Faulkner-Hogg to discuss best practices to support patients who are following a gluten-free diet. Kim is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with 30 years experience in the area of celiac disease and gluten-free eating. She completed her PhD in celiac disease and the effects of background gluten in gluten-free diet and was part of the original working party defining the Fazan's low gluten and gluten-free food standards. Kim has an online private practice and she also lectures student dietitians and as a consultant addresses other health professionals, the food industry and the public on celiac disease and gluten-free eating. Kim is also on the Medical Advisory Committee for GluteGuard at Glutagen. So welcome to our DC podcast, Kim, and thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, um, Jane and Dietitians Connection, to have another chat about this um, topic. Yeah, well, I think when you know when we think of um, gluten-free diets, our immediate thought is of, of celiac disease. But today we're just going to take some time to have a closer look at other medical conditions where reducing or avoiding gluten can minimise symptoms and improve quality of life for, for those people. So a term that I hear a lot is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I'm wondering if you can explain that a bit more clearly and how you can best identify or diagnose that condition? Uh, Yes, thanks, Jane. Um, The symptoms are exactly the same, really, for people with celiac disease and a non-celiac sort of wheat sensitivity. So we can't really look at symptoms. There are, I have to say, sort of no real specific guidelines that a lot of people follow. There were some guidelines that have been suggested by a group in in 2012 who sort of put this area on the map. Their suggestion is that people should be on gluten-free diets and then they should do this double-blinded crossover challenge where they have gluten for one week 
and then they have a one-week washout and then they have something that's a gluten-free product for the next week. But both products need to be indistinguishable so they don't know what they're having. And that's pretty tricky when you're trying to do a gluten and a non-sort of gluten product. But it works well, I guess, in, in a research situation, not as well in a, in a you know, just a, a clinic. But when they've done that, they've suggested that up to about 30% of people who undertake that are actually diagnosed by doing it in that manner. But all of the people that go into it feel that wheat has some sort of, um, uh, they have some sort of reaction to wheat. So they, you know, definitely believe that wheat's a problem. If you want to look at some of the physical markers um, that they may be looking for, they, they, if you read a lot of the literature that says, you know, they've got normal villi and they've got uh, normal blood antibodies. So things that they've looked at, they've looked at the celiac genetics, they've looked at fecal uh, lactoferrin, which is a measure of inflammation in the intestine, they've looked at C-reactive protein, which increases shortly after, say, infection in the body. They've tried to compare intestinal permeability between the groups, but nothing is sort of showing up in that non-celiac group. And very recently a paper came out that I guess starts you to think about um, what we've been hearing. And this paper is actually suggesting that there is some changes that are occurring at the level of the villi. So I'm sure... I know when I've talked about this before, I've said that they're antibody negative and their their villi are, are normal. And I guess when people get screened for those celiac antibodies, those antibodies are looking for a reaction to gluten. And um, because they come back negative, nobody's having a small bowel biopsy. But when they're looking at research groups, they're showing that these people who are antibody negative, when they're looking at their um, small bowel, they're starting to show a little bit of damage. So when we talk about damage for celiac disease, they have different levels. There's a marsh grading. So a zero would be considered normal. One and two, you've got changes. And once you start getting to threes, then it's damage and you get diagnosed with celiac disease. So they're looking at changes in the people with a marsh zero, one or a two. They're showing that people with MARSH zero, which should be normal, saying if you've got a non-celiac um, gluten sensitivity, that the villi aren't quite as high as the sort of normal cohort. And um, they've got an increase in what they call an intraepithelial lymphocyte, which mimics what you can also see in celiac disease. So they are finding these very subtle changes are occurring at the level of the villi that is not seen in the general population to people who are wheat sensitive, but their bloods are negative. So it brings up the, the thought is maybe it's not necessarily the gluten that is leading to this um, inflammation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, for so long I guess you've had a lot of people talk about um they feel that they react to wheat, but I guess it's been dismissed a little bit, hasn't it? If they've been diagnosed not yeah. as being celiac, it's like, oh no, no, there's nothing wrong. But if it if it's not gluten, what potentially might else what else could be causing these changes in wheat? 
Well, that's interesting because there, there's a few things, and you know, it's got to the point with this where they're actually saying, look, we possibly shouldn't be calling it a non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but a non-celiac wheat sensitivity. And some of the papers are now reflecting that and coming out using that terminology. Because uh, I think probably as Australians and dietitians, one of the best ones we would know would be the fructans because the fructans yes. um, are found in the starch portion of the wheat. So again, nothing to do with the protein. And we know that it's responsible for the gastrointestinal symptoms um, but not necessarily the uh, non-gastrointestinal symptoms, you know, so it's not going to be responsible for headaches and fatigue and muscle aches and pains, but it could be responsible for the GI symptoms in this group. Lectins are being studied or some people call them the wheat germaglutinins um, by some people. Um, these these are carbohydrate-binding proteins um, and they can protect plants against external pathogens they're found in grains but also in other legumes so not just in the wheat and they've been shown to cause inflammation and pain i guess from what i've been reading it's the amylase trypsin inhibitors that um, i'm seeing more of so the researchers feel that it's the gluten containing grains so that's your wheat rye and your barley that have biologically active um, atis in humans and they report that the ATIs in the gluten-free grains show none or very minimal activity. And, you know, they're proposing that it's these amylase trypsin inhibitors, the ATIs and not the gluten, that cause uh, delayed symptoms and also they're shown to be able to stimulate um, inflammation in those who have a non-celiac wheat sensitivity. So, so I guess you know, we need to... Yeah, sorry, we need to keep an eye on the research because this is obviously still an evolving area. Yeah, it, it very much is. And, and they're really looking at these ATIs as stimulating the um, external sort of the um, the non-GI symptoms, you know, so the things that affect the skin, mm. uh, bones, joints, eyes, you know, that we see. Um, not only in people with the non-celiac wheat sensitivity, but also people who have uh, different autoimmune diseases. So, you know, it's suggesting that there's a role both in GI and non-GI symptoms in these groups. So as with everything, it always ends up being way more complex than we think initially. So, exactly. um, yeah, so there's, yeah. I've also read about um, the sort of... Uh, thoughts that um, there's gluten involvement with autoimmune conditions, which you've kind of touched on a little bit there. Um, can you tell us what the emerging literature is around gluten and, and autoimmune? So, look, there is more coming out, um, but we still have to say it's really in its infant stages. But you have to start with a thought and then grow on these thoughts in order to get you know, an actual, well, this is the way we're going to manage something. So we're sort of not a, this is the way we're going to manage something yet. But when they look at the autoimmune diseases, they are thought to have um, two components to them. There's this genetic component and then there's this environmental trigger. And as the genes haven't altered recently, it's the thought that that environmental trigger has. And so they're looking at the genetic modifications that have been made to wheat over the, you know, the years, sort of going back, I guess, intensely to the 60s and 70s, and how that we've increased our consumption of wheat in the Western diet. And they're looking at that as being the environmental trigger. 
Now, there was a pilot study um, that was published in about 2018 that suggested that a gluten-free diet might bring clinical benefits to women with autoimmune thyroid disease and that the thyroid disease responded best of all of the autoimmune conditions. So, you know, a different paper sort of reviewed what was out there and they came up with 66 of 83 studies on autoimmune disease and gluten reported that there was an improvement in the autoimmune disease. And they looked at things like um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, type 1 diabetes, the uh, thyroid disease, autoimmune hepatitis, uh, multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, IBD and vitiligo. And, you know, they thought that a lot of these studies, as I said, 66 of them, they thought that following a gluten-free diet benefited and it either benefited partially the improvement of medical markers that define those diseases or an improvement in the symptoms that people were experiencing. And again, this is where the ATI research is actually suggesting that um, there's a role for ATIs in both the inflammation that underlines the autoimmune disease and symptoms that people are experiencing. And it's not necessarily the gluten and that's still up in the air. So there's, there's this link there, but still, again, to be defined a bit more clearly. Yes, and it's not in it's not in everybody, you know, mm. so you... Um, you you can't sort of look at anybody with an autoimmune disease at this point and go, oh, aha, it's gluten or it's ADIs yeah. or it's just one of those possible things that they're looking at at the point at this point in time. Yeah. So with with the um, people, your clients who have um, non-celiac wheat or gluten sensitivity, um, how sensitive are they to gluten or wheat you know what is their sort of how restrictive do they need to be because I know in restaurants now it's sort of you can now get the question when you say gluten-free the standard response seems to be oh do you have celiac disease so yes. I, I think the assumption is that it's not as bad well and it's good at least that that, that people are being asked yeah. too so that they can, they can say yes with um non-celiac uh, wheat sensitivity there is a, a great range I mean, I've been doing this now for 30 years and, I mean, I've got people who will react to the malt extract that's in rice bubbles. Wow. And I've got people who could have one or two slices of bread uh, for several days of a week or, you know, at least one slice of bread every day, but that's sort of the the top amount of gluten that they may have, um, who would consider that they're reasonably quite reactive. So... Um, the, the range of symptoms vary as well. Some tend to be very much gut orientated symptoms and some of, you know, I've had it and now my joints are going to swell or my, I've got headaches. So I've actually got quite an interesting case study that, um, we could use to sort of highlight. Yeah. Um, if you can tell us symptoms. about that, that would be great. Okay. So this is, um, a, a lady who's an athlete. Currently she competes in, um, as a CrossFit competitor, but uh, in her younger years, like in her teens and early 20s, she was actually a rep netball or a rep rowing athlete. And she was diagnosed in her early 20s with Graves' disease. So, again, it was 
um, you know, not your your typical sort of gluten-related disorders and nobody would have ever linked it with um, gluten way back then. And Graves' disease is an overactive thyroid. So she was really struggling to keep weight on um, and be able to, you know, have enough energy for her, her, for her um, exercise. Ultimately with her, she needed to get her thyroid removed um, within a year of having that diagnosis. And the medication she was giving afterwards wasn't able to stabilise her condition like it does with many mm. others. So she sort of continued. She had rashes. She had blisters on her hands. Um, she had, you know, heart palpitations. The weight loss um, wasn't controlled, so that was still falling off her. Her hands and feet became quite inflamed and the joints swelled and ached. She had brain fog, you know, lots of fatigue. And she had the gastrointestinal diarrhea, bloating and stomach cramps as well. And this is after um, she, she had got, the thyroid removed. Sorry. This is still wow. after okay. the thyroid was removed. Yeah. And that's why they were going, this is so unusual. So she was put on um, an antidepressant for her IBS. Um, she had to give up sport because she just couldn't cope with it. So she did other things. She went traveling. And after about five years, you know, she'd learned to live with all these symptoms. She came back and then her doctor said, look, let's, send you to a nutritionist so the first diet advice she got was to go paleo so all the grains came out and in amongst that she did low FODMAP she took dairy out as well you know she's living on a very restrictive diet mm. um but she said she did feel better she had more energy the arthritic symptoms went the IBS symptoms stopped and was sort of at this point we're now sort of leading up to COVID um she gradually worried less about FODMAP and she brought those sorts of foods back in. She brought dairy food back in. She started to bring grains back, but she couldn't put the wheat food back. It was sort of specifically she got a lot of arthritic and joint pains, but um, she found if she was gluten-free, then that held that sort of symptom at bay, so she remained gluten-free. She hadn't any difficulties when she was living at home, but it was when she was going out and eating at restaurants that she noticed that there was more of an issue. And during COVID, when she was at home all the time, she actually got another increment of benefit in her health and kind of felt good, really good for the very first time. And some of that remaining brain fog and fatigue lifted even more. And she also noticed that her thyroid medication was becoming a lot more stable and she wasn't adjusting it every six months. And currently it's been stable now for about three years. But lockdown finished, we went back, COVID went we're back into restaurants and she started eating out again and her health started to sort of decrease again just from sort of out. And so she was thinking, gosh, what's she going to do? She still needed to go to competition. So she was restricting eating otherwise at restaurants, but when she's at competitions and away from home, that's all she could do. So she was looking for um, a solution and she found uh, the Caracane enzyme tablet. And this tablet, um, we know from the research that's been done on it, it can break down both gluten and the amylase trypsin inhibitors in food. So this tablet was able to reduce sort of the immune stimulants from both ways that we were discussing earlier, mm. um, you know, as possible symptoms for her, uh, triggers for her symptoms. So she started taking this tablet. She forgot to take it on one of her trips. Now, being a CrossFit competitor, it involves weightlifting, um, powerlifting, 
aspects of gymnastics, swimming and running endurance, high-intensity training. And she found, um, you know, when she was eating out at restaurants, her joints and her fingers were becoming sore and swollen again. And it was hard to grip some of the equipment that she was needing in the comp. And because she doesn't have celiac disease, she not actually thought about asking a lot of questions at restaurants. Um, she just yes. ate what was recommended as gluten-free. Yes, we, you were saying sort of when we, we started this. And she found it interesting that the small amount of gluten or flour contamination was able to trigger her symptoms again. So then she went back to taking the caracane enzyme with her everywhere that um, she was travelling. And, and every time she eats away from home, she takes it. And she notices now far less incidences of being unwell. And, in fact, she's just travelled Europe for two weeks and she took a caracane tablet each time she ate out and and she's come back reporting she had no return of symptoms at all during her, her trip. So, you know, we don't know if the gluten or the ATIs in her situation, but the caracane enzyme can break down both of these, which may, you know, lead to its effectiveness in reducing the symptoms of background wheat in foods. But, you know, she's got far less issues with restaurant foods now and is much more confident to accept social situations because of it. So she would just take that when she was going somewhere that she wasn't in control of the food, basically. So if she was preparing her own food, fine. But when she was going exactly. out and she wasn't sure. Yes. So each time she eats out, now she has it um, because she's got she's got a lot of training leading up to her comp. So it's not just being fit for the yeah. comp, but she also wants to be fit for her training. So she just doesn't risk it anymore. Yeah. And I think, you know, travel is one of those really tricky things, isn't it, for, you know, I feel like I've spoken to a lot of people recently who are, who either have celiac disease or have a non-celiac um, sensitivity and it really worries them going overseas particularly. Um, and I travelled recently with a woman who was in Japan and she had celiac disease and, um, and she said, you just language. don't know. Yeah, you can't speak the language and you don't know. Um, and I mentioned to her about the caracane enzymes too, which she wasn't familiar right. with, but I think um, for her next trip she just said it just gives you a bit of peace of mind when you're going into yeah. those sorts of yeah. situations. But that's interesting yes. that someone who has that non-celiac sensitivity um, reacts so fast and yes. so clearly to the trigger um, in the food. Yes, so that's what I'm saying. You know, in the 30 years that I've seen with clients, I have some very sensitive people um, who do show that sort of level of reaction. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. So, so Graves' disease being a thyroid condition, and you mentioned before that we're probably not quite at the point where if we see someone with a thyroid condition, we should be suggesting a gluten-free diet. What would your steps be to, to try and work out whether that would be useful or helpful for them? Well, you're right. We can't just come out and say, now this is this is the treatment for it. Um, a 2023 study, the one that's just come out this year, you know, it still says we don't have strong enough evidence to say everybody with some sort of autoimmune disease, especially the thyroid ones, which do actually respond quite well, need to have a gluten-free diet. It's not that overall message. Um, but there's enough evidence there that suggests that we need to listen to our client and we need to keep this in mind um, when we're looking at what their treatment may be. One of the researchers, you know, what I've been reading, felt that, you know, the ATIs played a role in that underlying inflammation 
but diet alone wasn't the answer to all of the autoimmune um, conditions and that you really have to have a careful diagnostic, you know, workup with your doctor and medications for most of these autoimmune diseases need to be a part, you know, or the main thing that people do. And then if the diet can complement and help, then that's something that you can add later. And as the ADI researcher has basically said, um, in what they've been doing, and they've been looking at these conditions, autoimmune conditions with ADIs in mind and, and, and dealing with different amounts of it in the diet, their recommendation is that the diet is reduced, say, 90%, not 100% like we do with celiac disease. So it still, you know, usually would mean we could go to a restaurant without having to ask too many mm. questions, unlike um, our case study who was that much more exclusively sensitive. So it all tells us if everybody needs to be individual. Yeah. Just and out of interest, yeah. sorry, I was just thinking, do you find clients um, often come to you having already implemented their own um, restrictions? Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. And a lot of people have come that way to start with. And so um, if this is how, you know, they and they've found that it's beneficial. So my role then is to make sure that they're doing gluten-free properly. Mm. So, you know, we really need to look at, well, what's in your diet? What do you understand about it? The reading the food label, the nutrients that might be at risk. And as a dietitian, then we need to support them to make the most of their gluten-free diet. And I know that you've been a really strong advocate for ensuring that anyone who needs to follow a gluten or a wheat-free diet um, maintains their quality of life. And we know that food is such a source of joy for you know so many people. Um, how? What's your advice to dietitians to try and ease the the burden um, of the diet um, on on the patients? So I, you know, I talk to people about pillars of support and. You know, within the healthcare team, um, you've got the dietitians and we need to make sure that they've got all of the nutritional information that they need. Um, but they, some people need to have the help of a psychologist as well. Like they're really struggling with the, the, the gluten restriction. And, you know, sometimes it's time to uh, suggest that they may need to uh, find, you know, a psychologist that can help them. I do ask people to join Celiac Australia. You don't just have to have celiac disease. You can join um, and still get the benefits of being having all of their advice in order to um, help you with your gluten-free choices and the, the, the benefits that you can get from um, reducing the cost sometimes of gluten-free food with some specials and things that come through. If their families are around when we're having these conversations, I just say to the family, you guys have to support them as well because this is for the rest of their life, you know, and so they might just be so thick and tired of, of uh, you know, advocating for themselves, so you guys take over sometimes. And, of course, when this mostly comes up is when they're in restaurants. And so I do talk to everybody about, you know, the caricane enzyme because, um, in my experience with, with clients, the use of the enzymes improve their quality of life and it's made them less anxious about the social setting. And so they're more likely to, you know, eat out again and be more confident eating out again if they have taken that tablet. So I see it as an extra tool that can help to combat that background gluten or ATI. Um, and they can just have it in a wallet, a handbag, a backpack, 
um, for those unexpected occasions. Yeah, and I guess that that is a really important part of quality of life, isn't it, is being able to be spontaneous and say, yeah, I'd love to go out for dinner, you know, just on the spur of the moment and not having to be pre-planning everything. Um, So, yeah. And that's where we can even use some apps, you know, the dietitians can talk about some apps with them as part of their role to help. Yeah. Um, So just uh, in the essence of time, Kim, I don't want to um, keep you for too long, but one of the sort of seemingly really hot topics at the moment around gluten-free diets is where and how oats can be included. And uh-huh. there seems to be quite a bit of discussion recently about whether they oats can or cannot be included um, in a gluten-free diet. Can you please update us on what the latest is in that area? All right, Jane. <laughs> Another yes, whole podcast, is it? <laughs> Yes, exactly. We've just done a two-hour presentation of it, yeah. so people can find that sort of on diner. Um, we are, we're trying to gradually um, allow the dietitians and the doctors and the gastroenterologists uh, you sort of to upskill on oats because what we've usually had is just this statement: look, oats contain gluten, therefore uh, don't eat them. And a lot of people in Australia don't get more than that as an explanation of oats. And then they go, but the rest of the world's eating oats. I don't really understand what's going on. So what we're trying to do at the moment is get people um, upskilled on what is the difference between the oat gluten and the wheat gluten, and to understand that the oat gluten can affect less than 10% of people with celiac disease. Therefore, the 90% of people who are not affected, we would like them to be able to have access to this wonderful, you know, nutrient benefits for of this grain. But at the moment, we're not suggesting that they add it straight in at the beginning because we still want to be able to uh, monitor people's progress so that we know um, whom may be affected and we can pick them up. So we're suggesting to dietitians have these discussions with your clients. Let them know about oats so that they're not as anxious about that grain. Talk about it with the healthcare team and then make a decision whether or not it's out, whether it's in, how it may be monitored. And one of the things that um, we're also doing as an aside is trying to um, have some sort of uh, advocacy with Pizans to get some proper labelling about it in Australia because we don't have that at this point. And Celiac Australia is actually contacting the um, oat growers that have products here in Australia to try to um, get an understanding of any cross-contact that might be in their products and they're eventually going to be putting a recommendation of oat products up on their site as well. So we're starting this um, learning process that's going to take a while but you know we're looking at a goal down the track of having more people with celiac disease safely eating oats. Yep so at the moment if you're newly diagnosed celiac disease oats are out of the diet um, for starting your starting point but down the track potentially they may be um, be able to be included. At the moment we're saying to people um, it doesn't need to be black and white out at, at the beginning. Discuss it with the client, discuss yeah. it with the doctors because there may be some situations, especially say for type 1 diabetes or where people have it well established and know that they're not reacting. They could be conditioned in you know, um, areas where 
they might start at the beginning. But it means that the whole healthcare team for that person, including the doctors, need to know that that discussion's taken place and have a say in um, agreeing with that situation or not. Yeah, because the last thing you want is different healthcare professionals for the same patient saying different things to them, one saying yes, one saying that's no. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's been so helpful, Kim. Um, as usual, though, it just says, wow, where are we going to be in another 10 years? You know, well, it's such a evolving area and, yeah. you know, the complexities and the nuances are developing all the time with the research. So just yes. it's really helpful to give this sort of, summary of where we are at this time point to dietitians who are listening. So we really, really appreciate your time explaining all of that so clearly and would also like to thank GluteGuard for supporting the podcast today. Thanks, Jane and uh, Dietitians Connection and GluteGuard. Thanks, Kim. Bye. Bye. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.